Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where every week we spend some time with people from all walks of life, actors, actresses, celebrities of any sort, athletes themselves, obviously, all who share one thing in common, and that, of course, is their love for the world of sports. This week, I get a chance to chat with a huge Yankees fan, Chaz Palminteri. Now, when you hear the name again, one of those guys that you may recognize immediately, you may go, let me go look him up. But once you say a Bronx tale, people's eyes light up. Because if you're a fan of the movies, whenever you hear a Bronx tale, you immediately go, that's one of my favorites. And if you haven't seen it, and you are a fan of those old style Italian movies, you've got to go look at a Bronx tale. Because this was a lifelong passion of Chaz. This is a guy that didn't really make it in the business until he was almost 40. It's a fascinating story. I mean, he was knocking around, getting bit parts here and there, talking about how he had a few dollars in the bank, writing this for years, for you know, over the years, and doing it as a one-man show, and then ultimately having it pursued by folks in Hollywood to whom he continued to turn down, which, as you'll hear in the conversation, I'm amazed at, until one day Robert De Niro shows up and says, we're going to make the movie the way you want to make it, and the rest is history, as a Bronx tale has a place in movie history. He's also done The Usual Suspects and so many more, and The Usual Suspects is one of my favorite movies. But I just think the story of Chaz Palminteri and how he didn't really make it until he was 39, and the man that he still is today continuing to do that one-man show is just extraordinary. I'm sure you will like it, and if you weren't a fan before, you'll be a fan after. Here now my conversation with Chaz Palminteri. Chaz, let me say, I'm really excited that you were willing to do the podcast, not only because I'm a big fan, but my dad grew up in the Bronx. I always think those Bronx <laughs> historians are, are kindred spirits, but I have to share this with you before we even get started. You sure. and I met once upon a time. It was just a hello, nice to meet you. We shook hands. I don't make a lasting impression. You were at my neighbor's 45th birthday party in Chappaqua, I think with a guy named Monty Lippman. And maybe somebody named Anthony Lippman is one of my closest friends. Yes. Yeah. So I think he dragged you to my friend's 45th birthday party in Chappaqua. That happened to be my neighbor. I, yes. I was in the circle. We shook hands and and then I moved on. So that that's when we met. It was about five years ago. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, so and listen, I don't even know if I have enough time just to spend on one thing you've done, which of course is how you got here, and that's through the Bronx Tale. And I've I've listened to you talk about it on your podcast, which, by the way, you're doing now, the, the Chaz yes, Palminteri Show. Yes, my podcast now just started. It's, we're on my sixth week, yes. Uh, so, so, but let's talk Bronx first. Where, where'd you grow up in the Bronx? Uh, 187th and Belmont Avenue. Okay, so my dad grew up on 190th and Jerome. Yes. And, and he talks about the Bronx in those times with the ability to walk to stadiums and, you know, uh, how different it was. It was, it was, it's almost romanticized by him. Is that how you remember the Bronx? Yes, absolutely. It was, it was a great, look, it's still a great place. A lot of people say, oh, the Bronx, the Bronx. Bronx is still a great place. You know, everybody has, you know, their section where we got to, you know, get it together. But the Bronx is still a great place, man. Do I love it. Do you find yourself back there a lot? I go there once a month. I go shopping at Arthur Avenue. I go there once a month. Every once a month, I go to Gino's Pastry. I go to Casa Mozzarella. I go to Mike's Deli. I go to Title Brothers. I go to uh, Bogatti Raviolis. You know, those are the best places in the world to shop. You know. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, if you're going to if you're going to Arthur Avenue, you're not going to shop for a sweater or a jacket. You're going to shop for no. food. <laughs> I mean, 
People come from all over to go there. They take buses. Buses go there. Yeah. You know, so it's just great. It's the original Little Italy. You know, not taking away anything from Little Italy in, in Manhattan. This is the original Little Italy. It's one of those great places to go right before you go to a Yankees game. Close enough. Oh, you pop in. Before the Yankee game or after the Yankee game? Yeah, I'm, I'm too old. I, I Five o'clock for me and then off to the game. And then I get home by the, by the end right. of the seventh inning. And, you know, obviously we want to talk about your love of baseball because that's one of the reasons yeah. why we do this podcast. But, you know, I, I was watching you reflect on exactly how all everything happened for you. And it really happened with one moment when you started writing, I saw you talk about this bits and pieces of a Bronx tale. Yeah. You turned into a, a play. And the one thing I've never known about it, where was the play? Where did you do it? I first did it at the West coast ensemble in LA. It was 60 seats. And it was such a phenomenon that it was only a 60 seat theater that the, the crowds were, it was ridiculous. So immediately we moved into theater West where was my workshop where I developed the Bronx Tale. And that was 300 seats. And we kept selling out there. So it was pretty amazing. Really? It's funny, because I was going to ask you, like, of the 60 seats, how many were filled? I mean, you were a relatively unknown guy, I'm assuming, at the time. like Totally unknown. You know, so yeah. what was it just people saw it? Word of mouth spread like wildfire? Word of mouth. The first, well, I, I did it, and the word of mouth got so big. And then a reviewer came from... Um, uh, from uh, the L.A. Times because he heard about it and he came to see it and he wrote this review that it's one of those reviews that, you know, your mother would write, you know what I mean? <laughs> like an amazing thing. He called it everything, you know, uh, 18 characters never, never done before. And it, it was never done before. Most one-man shows, you know, they go there, they talk about their life. They talk about certain things. This was a movie. I did a movie on stage by myself, a linear story. And I played all 18 characters. It, it just got crazy. I mean, literally, Bruce, literally, two weeks after I did it, I got offered $250,000 from Universal and, and, to, to buy the rights. And then you, later the got, rights. then you got laid off for a million bucks, didn't you? It went from 250, then they came up to, another studio came up to 500, then another studio came up to 1 million. And you said no. I said no. And I had $200 in the bank. <laughs> you, you know, first of all, there was no Twitter at the time, no Instagram. So it was no, no. word of mouth that you had to get it out there. But, right. you know, I, I've heard you talk. You, you were in your 30s at the time, right? 39. 39. You're basically penniless. You said you had $200 in the bank. $200 in the bank. And, and somebody's willing to dole out a million bucks. million dollars. And, and you're like, no? What, what are you thinking? I got no health insurance. Nothing. What nothing. are you thinking? I'm thinking that this is my shot. I wrote this for me. I'm playing Sonny, and this is my life, and I'm going to write the screenplay. And they all said, that's impossible. No one knows you. You're a great actor. I know you have Broadway credits, but no one knows you. And I said, well, they will know me. And that was it. And then finally, uh, I kept saying no. I remember the last guy, he put a piece of paper. He said, sign that paper. You have a check for a million dollars tomorrow. A million, I said, bucks. A, a, a million dollars. Bucks. My hand to God. And he said, I said, is there a bathroom around here? He goes, yeah, right over there. I walked into the executive bathroom. I looked in the mirror. I had this thing in my, uh, in my pocket, my, my father's card. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. And I put my hand in my pocket and I took it with me for some reason. I looked at it. I looked in the mirror. Could I curse? Is, am I, could I curse? Yeah, go ahead, whatever. whatever. Oh, whatever. Worst that'll happen is I'll get fired. 
No, no, I don't want to. No, go ahead. I'm kidding. I looked in the mirror and I went, fuck it. I'll never forget that. I walked back outside and I sat down and I said, I'll sign the paper, but I play Sonny and I write the screenplay. And he said, Chaz, this will never happen with you. You're not a star. We can't make a movie this expensive for 25 million with you in the lead. I said, well, then we don't have a deal. And I stood up and he said, if you walk out that door, this check won't be here when you get back. I said, that's fine. Maybe you should get me now. Otherwise, later, my course should double. <laughs> right? And he says to me, you know, this movie will never get made. I said, you're right with you. And he said, how do you know? I said, because it's too fucking good. <laughs> oh, man. And, I, and I walked out and my agents couldn't believe that I did that. Right? And a week, two weeks later, I did the show. I got off stage, standing ovation, and the stage manager ran over to me and said, Robert De Niro's in your dressing room. He just saw the show. I walked down there. I saw him. I said, hey, how you doing? <laughs> I didn't know him. He said, look, I know what's going on in Hollywood. Everybody wants it. He goes, listen to me. He goes, you should play Sonny. You should write the screenplay because it's about your life. I'll play your father. I'll direct it. And if you shake my hands, that's the way it'll be. I shook his hands. Bam, that's what happened. Yeah, and I got to follow up on that. But let me go back to the show itself first. You played 18 roles? I play 18 characters. And let me tell you something, Bruce. I still do the show. I still do it. And I tell people out there, you go to chaspalmentary.net and you go. And there is my schedule. I start in July at the uh, uh, Lavoie Theater in New Jersey. And I, I, I appear all over the country. I still do the show 31 years later. It's the exact show that Robert De Niro saw and how the movie got made. How are you remembering the lines for 18 different characters every night? It's called working very hard and studying. <laughs> you know, you study and you, uh, I mean, you know, I, that's how you do it. Man. It's hard work. All right. So, so we get to the movie, which really launches your career. And yes. I, I like the way you just, you know, like now you're, you're friends, but, you, you know, Bobby De Niro's in the back. You know, he, he wants yes. to, you know, like. Like you're doing a local stage play and he's like yeah. an Academy Award winning actor, one of the greatest of our generation. And he right. just happens to be waiting for you in the general in, in, in the dressing room. Well, he heard about it. See, you don't understand, Bruce. Everybody was Jack Nicholson came to see it. Al Pacino came to see it. Burt Reynolds came to see it. All these stars kind of came to see because they wanted to play Sonny. Didn't Jack? Yeah, I, I've heard you talk about Jack Nicholson wanted to play the role, right? Yeah. Oh, a bunch of guys did. Uh, all the, the biggest producers and directors in Hollywood came. They would follow me when I would get a, uh, at a restaurant. I would eat at these great restaurants because everybody would take me there. i go to bathroom. A producer would follow me into the bathroom, willing to write a checkout for a million dollars. I said, man, you know, just speak to my agents, man. Speak to my agents. <laughs> I just you know, keep thinking. Crazy. I'm thinking of a 39-year-old man who's like can barely pay the electric bill. Turning yes. that down. Now, did you call your dad and say? Yes. And what did he I say? I called my parents. And I remember that I called my parents and, you know, they were, they didn't have a lot of money and they had bills, of course. And I told them the first one was the toughest, the 250. That was the toughest to refuse because that came out of nowhere. After the 250, when I, if I said no, it became just numbness to me. It didn't mean anything. And I told them and they just said, son, we love you. You do what you want. We believe in you. Don't worry. We'll be okay. Am I correct in saying your dad was a bus driver? Yes, he was. So he's making probably $20,000. No, no, he's, he's retired. 
He had retired he already. I mean, his, his retired, biggest salary right? at the time was probably $20,000, whatever it was, to drive a New York City bus. Was that. My father, yeah, my father, our rent growing up was $38 a month. And, and you're turning down a million bucks, and they're fine with it. Yes. Yeah, you didn't grow up in a Jewish family, by the way, which I did. If I had called my parents about that, <laughs> trust me, we, we wouldn't be sitting here together today. But, well, but they just... They believed in me, and they said, you do what you want, son. Yeah. The funny thing is, I've always thought Jews and Italians are very similar. Talk with your hands, have a bank account, yeah. like to eat, you know, at dinners. I mean, we're, we're very similar in many very ways. Very similar. We? Yeah. Yeah. It's about a different one-year graduation. That's all it is. So, so you turn it down, and then it works out exactly as you had liked, with yes. Robert De Niro saying, you write it, you're in it, he's in it, and it becomes, I think you'd agree, not only a, a success right. commercially, Yes. But it's almost, it's got, it's got like an iconic place in history. You mentioned a Bronx tale and people like, oh, one of my, my favorite or one of my yes. favorites. I mean, it's, it's got like a different feel to that movie. Totally, totally different. I mean, think about, think about the story, how great the story is. And, I, and I, I try to say this very humbly. Think about it. It's the only time a guy starred in the one man show, in the major motion movie, and in the Broadway musical. Yeah. And still it does it now. 31 years later, you're still doing it. And I'm still doing the one-man show. And you know what? It's bigger than ever. In fact, the next time I do it, you should go on chasparmentary.net. When you want to see it, you get in touch with me with the publicist. And you have two tickets, you and your wife, anytime. Uh, you got to be in the New York area. Do it in the New well, York it'll area. Be, yeah, I'll be in the New York area. Okay. I'll be in, I'll, I do all the five boroughs. I do LA, Texas. I go everywhere. I'm, I'm taking you up on it. Believe me. because Well, I, I, I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. I want to see it. When you were doing it on the, on the small stage for 60 people and then ultimately transitioned to the bigger one, were you getting yeah. paid part of the gate or were you just getting a salary? I was getting paid part of the gate, but I had to pay the guy back who put up the $40,000 who, who believed in me his money. You know, so I really wasn't making a lot of money at all. Theater, you don't make a lot of money back then, especially back then. How how'd you find, how, who was the guy that believed in you? It was the guy in 1982. I worked for him as a bouncer and as a bodyguard because I used to box, you know, and I, and I knew how to handle myself. And I worked for him as the first doorman of a club called The Limelight in New York City. And I worked there. And then when I left, I left there in 1982. Five, he offered me to go listen to this, Bruce. I never told this to many two people. He offered me to go to Chicago and be the manager of his new limelight in Chicago. He was going to give me $75,000 a year plus a brand new car. Wow. I told him, listen, I'm, I want to try LA now. Fire me so I could collect $127 a week unemployment. <laughs> So he fired me and I went to LA and I collected 120, 127, excuse me, dollars a week. And that's, uh, that was my journey. If I'm a parent, I'm telling you, you've made every bad decision possible <laughs> in your life. And yet here you are. And by the way, my grandfather was a plumber in the Bronx and wow. was a prize fighter who actually fought in Madison Square Garden when he was young. Wow. Every time I asked him about the story, I said, well, why'd you give up fighting? He goes, I came home one day and I had won like, you know, they, he was playing for like a toaster. It wasn't like real money. Right. And my mom hit me over the head with a broom handle and said, I'm not raising a bum. So he stopped prize fighting. That <laughs> <laughs> was my grandfather in the Bronx. But, you know, do you ever get tired of, of, the, of sharing the story? You know, I saw you on your YouTube channel talking about it. It seemed right. like you could do it 
you have a different audience of one every day and you're so enthusiastic about it even these years later yes well because how could i do the the one man show 31 years and still go out there and be so excited to tell this tale it's just a great story and i love it because it inspires people and i do it to to show people that listen my father is the one who wrote the saddest thing in life is wasted talent and put it in my room okay he put that in my room now you have three sons right i have three sons yeah you have three sons right so I'm going to, I got to get, you got to give me a, a I'm going to send you an address. I'm going to send you a card because I sell that card on my website. Okay. And it's the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. And because my father put that in my room and I looked at it every day of my life. I would love it. And by the way, we'll talk about it later, but my two oldest sons have now seen the usual suspects and my oh, oldest son, who's like a movie connoisseur, as I use the right. air quotes, I mean, he's watching stuff from the 50s like you know kids his age they don't even watch movies he's watching black and white movies great I, I was so proud of myself that neither of them knew the ending but we'll talk about that because it's to me the greatest ending in movie history but great. you know i i've said this before we get back to the movies i've always been jealous of christopher mad dog russo because oh. you, you would go on his radio program yes. time to time i was his lead-in for many years on mad dog radio for five years and i'd always hear oh, oh Ch Chaz is coming i'd be like why doesn't he come on my show? Just because you did Mike and the Mad Dog all those years, it's not even fair. Because yeah. I know you're a big baseball guy. Big baseball guy. Yeah. And, you know, Mad Dog can talk about baseball in the 60s and 70s, but doesn't know anything today. If it <laughs> didn't happen 100 years ago, he knows nothing about it. Right. But you grew up in, in the Bronx, as did my dad. He was a big Giants fan. Now, he's a little older right. than you. The Giants, you're, you were probably very young when they moved, just a couple of years old, right? I was young, yes, very yeah. young. But what was your dad? Was he a big baseball guy? And was he Yankee a fan? Yankee fan. He was a Yankee. My mother, my mother was even a bigger fan than my father when it came to the Yankees. Really? My mom was my a Brooklyn mother, Dodgers fan. My mother passed away at 97 years old, and she watched the games until then and asked me, how'd the Yankees do? My father passed away at 90. They saw all my success, and they constantly talked about how the Yankees do today? I missed the game. Oh. How, how old was your dad when he passed away? 90. Okay. So then similar to my grandfather, my grandfather would tell me stories about watching Babe Ruth, who yeah. to me is, he's, he never really existed. He's just a right. cartoon. I mean, this right. Babe Ruth, there's no way he was actually a real person. And I right. would sit with him and he would share stories about Babe Ruth. And I found it so fascinating that anybody right. actually got to see him play. And your dad must have done that. My no, my dad actually saw DiMaggio. DiMaggio was his guy. Oh, okay. It was DiMaggio? That was his his real. You know, when he grew up, yeah, you know, he loved DiMaggio, uh, uh, and so he told me stories about DiMaggio. Me, I came the Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris time, Eminem boys. Yeah, well, I, and I want to ask about Mickey Mantle in a second, but um, my dad was a Giants fan, so he was a Willie Mays guy. But mm -hmm. even to this day, says the best player he ever saw was Joe DiMaggio. People do say that a lot. Yes, a lot. I mean, if, if you want to go five tools, if you really want to go five tools, and even though I'm a diehard Yankee fan, if Mano had good legs, mm. you, you have to go with Willie Mays. You have to. Yeah, that, that was my dad's guy. He, he had a scrapbook when Millie Mays came up as a rookie. You know, he was a kid yeah. putting together all that stuff. It was just great. But I mean, think about it. Mays had 660 home runs. Yeah. But no steroids. <laughs> And big ballparks. Yeah, maybe some amphetamines from time to time, but that was no, about it, right? That's something else. Yeah. <laughs> that's something else. Are you only a baseball fan? 
Or did you like all no, the no, York no. I was I I was mostly a baseball fan, but I was a huge Giant fan, a Knicks fan, a rain. You know, if you're you're like me, it's always the the Knicks, the Giants, the Rangers, the Yankees. That's okay. it. So I was Yankees, Giants, but grew up on Long Island. So I was the Islanders and Nets because we were Nets. close to the Coliseum. And, and when they came around, I was like nine. And all of a yeah. sudden, you know, I had yeah, teams I near me. That. So I liked those two. It didn't really match up. But here's a little history. I worked at Mickey Mantle's restaurant. And you're going to appreciate this. I was Bill Mazur's producer at wow. WFAN in 1986. And occasionally, Mickey Mantle would eat in the restaurant. Bill Mazur, who I'm sure you remember from New York, um, was friends with him. And I don't think I really appreciated that probably five times a year I was having lunch with Mickey Mantle. Wow. After we got finished with the show. And there were times, look, he didn't have the best reputation. I'm sure you know, as being the nice guy all the time. Kids would come in and ask for autographs. Sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't. But I never really appreciated that I'm sitting with one of the greatest players ever only now, years after that experience, do I go, I wow, I was having lunch with Mickey Mantle. Did, I know. Did you I'm meet so, him? I'm so envious of you. Did, did you meet him? I met him, but I, I can't say that I got to know him. No, we just met. It was hello and hey, you know. And I met him at, uh, at, at his restaurant, in fact. Yeah. You know, and he seemed very nice. Uh, and that was it, you know, but I, I really didn't. I didn't get to know him. I really got to know the, the other guys. You know, when I became famous then, when I became famous, I really got to know, like I, I got to know Jeter and O'Neill and Coney and all those guys, you know, yeah. which was really great. Yeah. I, I just yeah. got to quote Bill Mazur for a second. Uh, Mickey Mantle's on Central Park South between Fifth Avenue and Sixth Avenue. That was how we talked about the show every day. <laughs> and, and then, so, so when you finally hit it, and I want to get to the usual suspects, but Sure. When you finally hit it, and now your people are wanting to meet you, like Derek Jeter and like the New York Yankees. Yeah. I mean, I think when when fame comes when you're young, maybe you have no real appreciation for it. But with totally. all you went through, you've got to have a different perspective on on what that all means. Right. I mean, I was almost forty now. You know, when I hit it, you know, and I've been in the zone now for thirty years, which has been great. I've been here thirty years now. You know, I'll, I'll be sixty nine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, May 15th. And uh, it's, I I appreciate it so much more, so much more. And I try to pass that down to my children. It's harder, but I do it. But I try. I really do. And do they, do they listen? Yes. Well, you know why? Because I took that card. I took that card and I put that card in their rooms when they were little kids. And as they grew up, I said, what does that card say? Daddy. All right. All right. Because that's what I did. That's what my father did to me. And it makes them look at that. And it teaches them that they have the talent already. They just can't blow it. Don't, you're already talented. You can do whatever you want. Just don't blow it. And it just gives you a sense of confidence. I'm telling you, that's why I'm going, I'm going you have three sons. I'm going to send you the card. Well, and, and my oldest son, by the way, is an aspiring author, a novelist, not, you know, he wants to write books. You know, the one that has that great appreciation for movies. And who's this Max or Lucas? Uh, this is Jack. Jack. Okay. How do you know my kids' names? Do I want to know? Are you doing, are you doing Intel on me now that I have to worry about this? No, no. I, when I do, when I meet with somebody, I, I want to know that they do Intel on me. So, so they could talk to me intelligently. So anytime I do a Zoom, I look up the person and I know and I read about them. And I say, oh, he went to Tulane. I know you went to Tulane. Got the helmet I mean, behind me. 
right? I, I yeah. see that there. I know you were the voice of the great green wave. I know about that. And I think it's my responsibility as a, as a human being, as an actor, to know the person who's talking to me. So I could talk about him. You know, it's not just about me. It's about him, too. Uh, let me say this. I appreciate that. And you're really the first person I've ever talked to that has taken the time to do that. Well, I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I was taught the right way by my parents. When a person interviews you, know about him. Don't always talk about yourself. Talk about the other person. And so, you know, I do that. I research and I speak of it. And I, you know, and I think that's partly why I've been a success for 30 years. Yeah. So, so but the purpose of this podcast is people want to hear about you. So I'm going to yes, go back okay, to you. Yes, I get it. And, you know, before we even get to the, the career that followed a Bronx tale, how long did it take you to write? And did you ever think like you weren't going to make it? You seem to have a lot of confidence in that yes. at some point it was going to happen. But at 39, Right. I mean, you know, that's like a minor leaguer that's 32 thinking he still has a right. shot at the major leagues. You know what I mean? Exactly. Did I ever think that I was not going to make it? No. Wow. I, I, I it's could, amazing. I could say that emphatically. No. People go, how? That's impossible. I said, when you grow up with a sign that says the saddest thing in life is wasted talent, you are not, you are working 28 hours a day. You know, in your heart, in my mind, my mother and father kept telling me, you will be somebody. You will be a star. We know that. We believe in you. My two sisters were very successful because they did the same thing to them. They were much more successful before me. You know, they were very successful. So I was the one who was lagging behind. I had the talent, but I didn't have the credentials. You know, I didn't have any money. Yeah. But I knew I had the pedigree. I went to college to study acting. I studied with Lee Strasberg. At the, I, I became a member of the actor's studio. I worked really hard, but it, we have a business that it doesn't matter how good you are, you need the break. You got to get that break. Yeah. And I knew the break was going to come. And when did you start, like, when did the thought pop into your mind of creating this, these characters and then starting to expand on them, which ultimately became a Bronx tale? When I got fired. When I got fired. When I got fired from that job, I came home. So you hadn't thought I, about it before that? It wasn't running in the back of your head or? No, no. I the, the killing always was. I always thought about the killing. And I remember those guys. And I used to say, gee, I, I like to write about those guys. Maybe if I get, ever get a chance, maybe I'll write about that killing one day. And then finally that day happened. But this, the getting fired was the impetus. Really, I got to thank Swifty Lazar for firing me. You know, he fired me. <laughs> The, the biggest community, the biggest agent in the world fired me, and it was the best thing that ever happened. Yeah, that's what you got to do. You got to thank somebody for firing you that put you on this track. You know, I, yeah. I've seen your, your podcast and your YouTube video about your favorite movies. Uh, yeah. Can I, this is, this is actually one of my favorite movies. I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure, but the original Going in Style with Lee Strasberg. Oh, How yeah. How was that movie with Art Carney and that, George Burns? A great, a great, a great movie. And Lee Strasberg was a great actor. I mean, my all-time perfect, perfect favorite movie is On the Waterfront. I know. I've, I've heard you talk about that. Yeah, and it's not just mine. It's Marty Scorsese's favorite movie. It's Bob De Niro's, one of his favorite movies. It's really the classic, perfect movie. And, and you said, because there's not a wasted, mo there's not a wasted piece of dialogue in the entire no. movie. Is that correct? That's correct. Not a wasted frame, piece of dialogue, great acting, writing, directing. Uh, it was just, 
It's the perfect movie. The perfect movie. I'm dating myself, by the way, but wasn't Lee Strasberg also in Justice for All? Did, did he play the dad of Al Pacino or was that somebody else? You know what? I don't remember that. And I should know that because I don't remember. So I don't want to say. Okay. I love it's that very movie possible. Too, he was very good friends with Al. Yeah, I love that movie too. But yes. so, so you're confident that this was going to happen, which I, I still yes. think as I listen to, you know, my son's confident in his ability to write, you know, and I'm like, you know, when you go into a profession in the arts, you just don't know, but I encourage him to pursue it. It's his dream. And you're sticking with it at 39. So you finally get that break and it opens up all these doors. Did you think, did you think you were an actor or did you think you were a character by that time? Oh, I was an actor. I was an actor. I was a, I was a really good actor. I mean, you don't just jump on a stage and play 18 characters. That just doesn't happen. I was a seasoned act. I was, I was just studying and working hard at my craft. And that was it, man. I just, I just knew this was my moment. No more. This is it. I'm doing this. And believe me, I still, I sell out every show I do, a Bronx Tale, the show. And people come and they just go, I love the movie. I love the musical but I love the one person show the best. That's what you're they not, say. Your phone's not ringing before you do a Bronx tale to be, to do stuff in movies. Are you, is it? I mean, I know you had some bit parts here and there, but were you getting jobs before Bronx tale? Yeah. Not movies. No. Right. So, yeah. so you do a Bronx tale and then what happens? Like, is the phone ringing off the hook? We, off the we've got to get Chaz. Well, I'll give you an example. Yeah. I did Bronx tale. Then I did a couple of, I did Bronx tale. Then I got off at usual suspects. Then I got off at Bullets Over Broadway, which I which I got nominated for Academy Award. Yeah. So I was off to the races, and I haven't looked back yet. Yes. So I got to talk to you about Usual Suspects because sure. you know I always wonder. Everybody has a different process with why they why they select a certain project, and I've always actually appreciated uh, Robert De Niro because I've heard him talk publicly about this. He's done as yeah. as despite all the phenomenal movies that he's done, he's done a lot of clunkers, and yes. he's been asked about it. And he goes, I like to work. You know, I just like to work, which I, I appreciate because yeah. then you got Daniel Day-Lewis who takes a role every 17 years right. because, you know, he's got to work on his big toe. So right. <laughs> <laughs> which were you? Were you the guy that liked to work or did it have to be the perfect project? It has to fit yeah, what I, I like. Yeah, I know. That. I'm kind of a, a, in between both of them. You know, uh, I, have I turned down movies that I just go, I can't do this. This is just too bad. I just can't do it. Now, it's very hard when they get like, well, you think, well, really? You don't want to do it? Well, how about if we give you another 500,000? And then you start going, you start looking at the script and you go, I think I can make something out of this. You know, Listen, you know, my wife will look at it and go, you know, it's not as bad as you think it is. <laughs> right. You start convincing yourself. So have I done that? Of course I have. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, am, I am guilty of that. But I try. I try to do quality work as much as I can. Did you ever regret taking a role because the price tag went up and you look back and go, mm, yeah, it didn't work out the way I would have hoped? Uh, no, not really, because I have the money in the bank and I don't care about it. No, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. Because I look at it and I go, did it hurt my career? No, not really. I mean, was there a role that I turned down because, because I was, I was, I could have made it work, but I was directing something. And it still irks me to this day because I love the movie so much. And that was Donnie Brasco. And I love, and I, and I, and I'm, I worked with Al Pacino. We're on stage in New York and I got off at Donnie Brasco, but uh, to play uh, Sonny Black, 
Okay. So it's not Michael the Al- Madsen, Michael Madsen did it and he was great. Yeah, not the Al Pacino role. I thought you were gonna say the Al Pacino role. Oh no, 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 not the Al Pacino. It was Sonny Black. He was the guy who was Al Pacino's boss. And I and I, I regret not doing it because I love the movie so much, and I think it's one of the great uh mafia crime movies. Uh and I didn't do it. But you know, Madsen did it, I know him, and he was he was wonderful in it, brilliant. Yeah. So but I could have been in <laughs> and I'm mad, you know. <laughs> Uh, and that that was one. You know, it's one of those rare movies that you know the book was so good. You worry is is the movie going to hold up? And I mean, emotionally, you, you could feel the angst between Al Pacino and Johnny yeah. Depp at the end. I mean, the yeah. conflict he That's had great. with being yeah, immersed with him. I mean, yeah. it was great. Yeah, great actors. You know, great. You got a great story. Great actors. Great director. You know, works out okay. You hope. So, so tell me when you got the script to Usual Suspects, because again. Oh my God. Here's what I think is amazing. I'm amazed that today there are still people that they recognize the name, but they don't they don't know what it's all about. And that you can sit down and say, we've got to watch this. Right. You're going to be shocked at the ending. And I've seen it now about 20 times. And I sat there with my son, Jack. Right. And I'm like, I'm, I'm he's like, tell me, is this the guy? Is that the guy? And I said, I'm not saying anything. And then my son, Max, goes through the same thing. And at the end, they're they're all blown away. So you yeah. get this script. What do you think when you got the script to The Usual Suspects? I read it and I said, wow. I said, this is one of the most, I didn't know it was great. And I, I didn't think it was bad. I just said, this is so different. I don't know how this is going to work, right? But then I met the director, uh, Brian Singer. And he was a kid. Now he's a big, famous director. Yeah. But he was a kid back then. Never directed a big feature. And I met with him and he was like, oh yeah, you don't understand. We're going to do this and we're going to put this. And the guy's standing there and then he pisses on the fuse and then this happens and that happens. And I went, you know what? He's got so much passion and vision. I'm going with this kid. I'm going with this kid. I believe in him. And you know what? The, the kid, and look, Chris McGuire wrote a great script. He won the Academy Award for, for the script. Yeah. And he wrote a great, great script. And it's a great story. But they should have did sequels, sequels to that. They should have did, they they missed the boat with that because it's such a great story. They should have did a pre a pre sequel or or, or or another one now. So so what what would the pre story be? Setting up how Kaiser Soze becomes Kaiser Soze? What, what? Not, yeah, they could have they could have or make just a sequel. You know, uh, maybe I'm being a little selfish because Agent Kuhan. How to be in it to keep searching for right, Well, you were one of the few guys that wasn't either killed or left for debris I mean, on the I, side of the road. Yeah. I mean, till this day, Gabriel Byrne still thinks he was Kaiser Sose. <laughs> I go, I go, Gabriel, it's over. <laughs> it was Kevin. People ask me, hey, who was Kaiser? I said, look, I'm in the movie and I don't know who it is. <laughs> Leave me alone. You know, you know, the two things, the opening scene where you see, you know, the look on the guy's face, and then right. you spent the next two hours going. I'm not really sure what's going on here, but at some point they're going to unveil it. And you really weren't clued in about anything. And right. then and then with the dropped cup and all the stuff right. that's on the wall, and then it's almost chilling when the, when the facts comes through right. and to see your reaction. And I wonder how many takes it took you to do that and, and what you thought of it after it was done. Cause yet yeah, that had to be like real, like you had to feel like we were just yeah. joined by, oh my God, what just happened here? Well, you know what it was? Uh, Brian, who told me, he said, look, this sums up the whole movie. Just take your time and go to each thing, and I'll just wait for you. I'll follow you. Don't worry. And I dropped the cup, and then I looked, and then I looked at each one. 
And then I just took my time and let each moment really, really connect. And then the real thing was the facts. Like, oh my God, I had them right here all along. I'm getting the chills now when I think about yeah. it. Yeah, and you guys so, don't run fast enough because with the second you realize that you're running out the door yes. and he's getting in the car and pulling down the street and that's the end he's of gone. it. Uh, and what's the line? Like the devil, he makes you believe he doesn't exist and then he disappears. It's like this, he's gone. Yeah, it's just, I'm telling you, I can't wait to watch it with my youngest son, who's not gotten oh, there yet. Uh, okay. He'll be third on the list, so I get to watch it for the 21st time. But, you know, I'm I'm always interested. You said you went you went to the Lee Strasberg School, you know, of acting. Uh, no, I went to the, the Actors Studio. I became yeah. a member of the Actors Studio. Right, yes. which, you know, I watch, and I don't think we have a true pre appreciation to what goes into making a good movie, because I know that when you've done it, you've done it like, 20 times and yet you have to have genuine emotion for the 20th take how do right. you learn how to act uh, you know that's something look how do you look people look at you and they go oh, he just gets there and talk oh that's yeah it. that's it that's how do. hard that is <laughs> that, that's hard i do it i when i'm doing the podcast i go oh my god i'm exhausted <laughs> i gotta get back because you have to keep your mind has to keep going. You got to keep talking. You got to sound interesting. You got to sound funny. You know, that's a gift. Just like you, you have a gift that I have a gift where I could just become that person. I you would know. say my wife says I've checked none of those boxes, but uh, I'm, I'm glad I fooled you for at least a couple of minutes. You know, I, <laughs> I forgot to ask you one thing about a Bronx tale, by the way, because I saw you talking about this. Your dad was actually going to be in the film. Yes, he, he was in the film. Did he have a speaking part in the film? No, no. Okay, he so he, pulled up, he pulled up with the bus. I look at him and I go, it's okay. I'm waiting for the next one, my father, you know, which was uh, De Niro. Right. And he pulled out. And it was, it was great. But you know what? We looked at it. And he, I was the one who said, Bob, it doesn't fit. It, it makes the scene too long. We got to cut it. And he goes, it's your father. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, I, but Bob, be honest. Come on. And you know what? He was right. But you know what? Could we have left it in? Yeah. And, and you know what? You know what I'm thinking? Not only could you have left it in, but I know how the movie business works. I've shared this on this podcast a number of times. I was actually in a movie with Christopher Mad Dog Russo, the bad lieutenant. Um, wow. What, what Harvey Keitel? Yeah. Did you see it? That's right. Yes. No, I saw it many years ago. So over the wait, opening. Wait, were you one of the kids? No. Over the opening credits, I'm arguing with Mad Dog about the World Series. And then when Harvey Keitel's in the squad car, it's right. on the radio talking about the New York Mets. Wow. He's a degenerate gambler. But I remember that, yes. I, I've shared this story a million times. To this day, I get a residual check. So I'm thinking you could have put your dad in the movie. You could have given him a line and a credit. And he would right. have gotten like $2 every three months. You know what? <laughs> that was the movie's dedicated. The movie, well, Bob dedicated to his father because his father just passed away, which was beautiful. Uh, and my father was still young at the time. Uh, but my father, my, my father, Lorenzo, that's his life. And he's so, he was so proud of that. He was so proud of that. What, what do you like doing more? Do you like acting or directing? Uh, I like all three. I like acting, writing, and I like writing very much. But, but I've heard you talk about writing. You said if you're acting, you got to do it. You know, if you're directing, you got to do it. Writing you better be passionate about it because there's no schedule. The You're not punching a clock. So right. writing's the hardest. You know, when so you've gotten right. to where you are, if it's not, if it doesn't come naturally, like a guy like Stephen King, he sits down, the words come out. Does it come naturally to you? When I start doing it, yes. T sitting down is the hard part for me. 
is sitting down. But once I sit down and go, I go, I go. Stephen King is, he's a, anybody who's that prolific is, that's scary. Well, there's something going on in the brain that you just can't shut off if you're doing something. Yeah, that's just scary. I I, I always think that about musicians that uh, Paul McCartney is writing music 50 years later and Bruce, I mean, I don't get how they do that, but. Right. Did, did you have like a process when you would sit down? Like, did you say it's a work day? I'm going to work nine to five or were yeah, you working hot hours? you got to write at the same time every day. You got to treat it like it's a job. If you can do that and then people go, well, I got to wait till I get inspired. I go, no, 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 no. You could inspire yourself by sitting there. You know, I do that. I do that. I'm writing a new play now for Broadway. So I'm excited about. Have it. you done other Broadway, by the way? Have you done any acting? Have I written other Broadway shows? Have you acted in a lot of Broadway shows? No, no, no. I, I acted in uh, in one Bronx Tale. That's it. The musical. Yes. Did you ever want to? Wait a minute. It wasn't on Broadway, but it was like right. Broadway in right. New York with Pacino. Did, did you I ever want to do more theater? I I've done so much theater off Broadway, off Broadway. But once I became famous, I didn't want to do off Broadway anymore because doesn't pay anything <laughs> right. you know and i was I'm making so much money doing movies and television it's hard just to go i want to go back but is now it, i want to go back is it hard when because i know this happens like with child act you know we always wonder like why child actors have struggles when they get older and i always say look when you achieve the greatest heights in your life when you're 12 it's right. really got to be depressing for the rest of the way now that's not you because you didn't get there till you were 39 but Right. Is it tough when you've set the bar so high with your first project and it's almost going to be impossible to duplicate? Not that I'm not talking about commercially. I'm just no. talking about the success at almost no. every level, the respect that came with it and all that. I don't think about that at all. You don't? No, I just think about putting it out there. And, and he, I remember I, I remember uh, speaking to uh, Woody Allen about this. And Woody Allen said, uh, at the end of my lifetime, I will have 10 movies they'll call brilliant, another 15 movies they'll call very good, maybe another eight or nine they'll say didn't come out really well, and another five or six that might have sucked. Because that's all you got to think about. You just put it out. Yeah. They're, they're, it's, not about, it's, not, it's, just, it's just putting it out. Yeah. There's another guy that, I mean, I can't imagine what's going on in that brain. And by the no. way, he's... He's well eclipsed the the ten great movies. I mean, his early works. I don't know if you were a fan of like Sleeper oh, yeah. and Love brilliant. and Death. I mean, I quote Love and Death to this day. Yeah, brilliant. Yes. Yeah. You know the chicken at Tresky's. But anyway, I, I digress for a second. Um, you know, we only have a couple of minutes. By the way, how are the Giants going to be this year? Do you are you still do you still closely follow your teams? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean the Giants. You know, here's the bottom line with the Giants. You know what I mean? They they just have to get an offensive line. They don't have an offensive line. They're always shuffling, moving guys in and out. Guys are playing. It's. I'm sorry. The key is, unless you could protect the quarterback, forget it. You can't. You know, no matter how great you are, you can't do it. You know. How often do you get to any game, whether it's a baseball game, a football game? Baseball you get out- games, a lot, a lot. You do? A lot, yeah. Well, when I say a lot, I can go 25 times. Really? 25 games. Yeah, yeah. That, that's commitment. I can go to 25 games, home games, yeah. And then when if I'm I'm doing a show on the road and they're in Toronto or somewhere, I go, you know, I'll go see them. You know, oh, yeah. Nick games, oh, yeah, I go there, you know. It's, this is strange. And I'm sure you, you understand this, Bruce. Football, I like to watch at home. 
I like I, I like to watch football at home for some reason. You know, I, I I when everybody asks, I always say I love to be in the arena for hockey. I'm a huge hockey fan. My son's a yes. huge hockey fan. Love yes. to be in the arena for hockey. I almost feel guilty working on NFL radio when I say I'd rather be home watching than in the stadium. Yes. I used to go to Giants games as a kid. What you get from being there is that like camaraderie that comes with being surrounded by everybody who's living and dying on every play. Right. But I like to analyze the game. I do I, too. I like to hear what they're saying, see the replay and say, oh my God, that guy, what is he doing? Oh, that off offensive line's getting their ass kicked. You know, I can watch it like that. And I understand it. When I'm there, there's just too much going on. I like to be football. I like to be home. Yeah. And, and baseball. And I know I got to let you go in a minute or two. I feel really fortunate. My youngest son's not, not a baseball fan, but my two oldest, especially my oldest, we would go to baseball games. It could be eight, three in the eighth. And I'd be like, are you ready to go? And he goes, no, we're staying for the last pitch. He, right. he loved, you know, that, that's a generation, as you know, Chaz, is right. not embracing baseball the way they do football and, and the other ones. And they love being in a baseball park. And I don't think there's anything better than sitting in the ballpark with your kids who are old enough now to go get their own food when they were like five and I had to like feed them every inning. That was right, right, a little exactly. too much. But it's the greatest. You know, sitting there with them and you're just appreciating what you're watching. There's nothing better. Yeah. I do this thing now, and I'm only saying it now because Ray, Ray Narone said it to the press and everybody knows it now. So, and I'll tell you quickly, when I used to, my father used to take me, he used to take me, and I we used to sit up in the nosebleed, third deck. And we used to watch my father and no balls obviously would ever come up there. It was too far, too high. When I became famous and I go to the games all the time, now I go to the games. I would always, Gina would always throw me a ball. O'Neill would give me a ball. They'd always flip a ball over to me because I was sitting behind the, uh, uh, where the dugout is, right? As soon as they give me a ball, I go up to the third deck where my father and I used to sit. And I look for a father and a son. Or a father and a, and a daughter, whoever, right? And I walk over to him, and they see me, and they go, oh, my God, Chas Bauteri, how are you? And I go, I'm okay. And I would sign the ball, and i say, here, this is for you. And they would look at me, like, wondering, why, does he, why is he doing this? Because I remember that I used to be up there with my dad. And so it's just a thing I've been doing now for years. Oh, uh, that, Yeah, I like that, it. That's a tremendous story. All right, I'm going to let you go. Um, again, you're doing a podcast? Uh, the Chaz Palmentary Podcast, uh, they can get it on uh, YouTube, uh, you know, Spotify, on the podcast station channel, and they can get it everywhere. All of a sudden, my restaurant, Chaz Palmentary Restaurant, 46, on 46th Street, 30 West 46th Street, and my new one in White Plains, 264 Mamaroneck Avenue, coming in White Plains. I don't know but about this. I'm living, yeah, I, new, I live in Greenwich. I'm coming to your restaurant. How often are you in the restaurant? Uh, the one in White, well, the one in White Plains didn't open yet. That opens at the end of the month. Are you going to be there? Of course, I'm going to be there. Yeah. Let me give you my email offline. Okay. okay. And and by the way, I just want to know when I come see your show, and yes. and the director goes, "Hey, Bruce Murray's backstage." Are you going to be like, "Tell him I left." <laughs> you cut, look, I'm going to. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you. Look, I own the show. It's not a big deal to me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'll give you if you bring your sons. Oh, bring okay. your sons, because okay. when young boys come and see it, you can bring Hillary too, but bring your <laughs> sons, okay? Bring them, because when kids see it, I do it a lot for high school kids or younger kids, and then we have a Q&A afterwards. Oh. So they can come in the dressing room and ask me questions about 
what I did. I'm totally taking okay. you up on it. My son, my oldest son lives in Atlanta. I'm getting him up when I see the show that we can make. Yes. We're doing it. I, I can't thank you enough. I'd love to do this again. I'll leave you with this. Forget that mad dog guy. Uh, call NFL radio when I'm on noon to three, Monday through Friday. He's, he's, he's washed up. He's yesterday's <laughs> news. Uh, Chris is smart, man. No, I know. I, I love him. I mean, we, 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 you know, I worked at the family with him. We know we've known each other yeah. for 30 years. So I got to, Chris, like, Chris is like, a, he's what I like about him is like, He's a diehard Giant fan, San Francisco Giants. And he hates the Yankees. And I love it that he hates the Yankees because that's a real Giant fan. As I said earlier, if you weren't a fan before, how can you not be now seeing what he put in to make his life a success? Again, not really making it until he was almost 40 years old, turning down all those offers. I know I couldn't do it, but he did it. It turned into a Bronx tale, launched his career, and yet he continues with that passion to do a Bronx Tale, the one-man show, even to this day. It's really an incredible story. I hope you enjoyed Next week, we'll talk some cooking. Tom Calicchio, celebrity chef, is going to join us. He's been on Top Chef for 18 years and, of course, is so much more than that. So I hope you'll join me next Thursday. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's also available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. Download it today and tap podcast. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at Bruce Murray NFL. Going Long is part of the SiriusXM podcast network. The executive producer is Andrew Emmer. Sound design by Robert Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And a special thanks to SiriusXM senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. I'm Bruce Murray. We'll talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.